Hey folks, Duncan Kinney here, host of The Progress Report. We're a part of the Harbinger Media Network, and a podcast on the network that I want to highlight is actually someone I'd love to have on the pod. I should probably reach out to them. That's Sarah Burrell, the host of Unmaking Saskatchewan. It is a proudly anti-capitalist and anti-colonial podcast series on how Saskatchewan was made and on how it can be unmade. Uh, it's fucking fantastic. I love it. I really do recommend the pod on Colton Wall, who is uh, Brad Wall's fuck-up son, if you were not aware. And also, uh, while you're here, if you like what we do and want to keep in touch, this is usually the part where we ask for money. I mean, if you want to give us money, please, there's a link in the show notes. But if you're not on our newsletter list, uh, we would really appreciate if you could sign up for it. Um, Jim and I, once a week, deliver everything you need to know about what's going on in Alberta straight to your inbox. We've been doing it for nearly seven years now, and it's a great way to keep up with what's going on in the world without being on social media. So also, I'm not going to say not give us money. So if you like what we do, give us money. The link's there. But please sign up for the newsletter. But now, on to the show. Friends and enemies, welcome to The Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. Recording today here in Amiskwachua Skygun, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory on the banks of the mighty Kasiskasawanisipi, or the North Saskatchewan River. Joining us today is Danielle Paradis, uh, a reporter with APTN, here to discuss uh, not just the latest kind of police brutality story here in Edmonton, but also a wide variety of Edmonton police issues. Danielle, how are you doing? Great, Duncan. Glad to be here. And I know I called you a reporter. I didn't actually like double check with you. Like, our, what is your official title with APTN? I know you're relatively new there. I am. Yeah, I just started in July uh, with the uh, papal visit being my first story. Uh, I am the I'm the Western correspondent for APTN. All right, all right, correspondent. That sounds better than reporter. That sounds more like yeah, definitely like official sounding. I guess it kind of sounds like you're explaining the West to the rest of the country, which has uh, <laughs> long been something that I've strived to do. Uh, I want yes, to be you're, the you're... Chantelle Bear of the prairies. Yeah, uh, Manitoba. Sorry, yeah, like Manitoba all the way to Euclid. That's your beat, I guess, now. Um, it, it shifts. Uh, predominantly, I'm focusing on Alberta and BC. We do have, of course, the headquarters of APTN is in Winnipeg, so they have a lot of reporters there and uh, also in Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's let's get to it. Let's not waste any time. Let's not mince any words. Uh, you know, the reason, you know, I saw you yesterday at the Edmonton Police Commission meeting, the reason we're chatting today, what has caught the attention of a lot of people, including myself, was an incident that happened recently that was caught on camera um, just after 4 p.m. on September 15th uh, near the Hope Mission in Chinatown in Edmonton, uh, where an unnamed Edmonton police officer was caught on camera uh, in a 13 second video clip, kind of violently pushing a woman to the ground. Uh, Bear Clan, Beaver Hills House posted the video online and it quickly went viral. Uh, before we get into the details, I just, I'm curious as to like your initial kind of thoughts and reactions when you first saw it. Mm-hmm. I was actually about to uh, drive out to Muscatchies with a colleague. So he gave me a call and uh, the first place he had seen the video was on Reddit. So he sent it to me and, and then we were both watching. And it was it, it was quite shocking. Uh, the videos which have been released since, they, they show a completely different angle. But uh, the initial video that we all saw um, had the uh, woman being shoved and you could see her actually, I would say, flying uh, as she's 
met with that level of force or open hand force, as the Edmonton police call it, uh, it, it definitely shocking to me. Yeah, and, and later in the day, uh, the police put out a statement saying that the woman was brandishing a knife, uh, name-dropping the gang that she was affiliated, affiliated with, and that the violent push was justified and that no further investigation was needed. Um, on Monday, it was revealed that she was not charged with any crime and that was, she was released uh, after she was sobered up and, uh, and was given a meal. And just yesterday at the Edmonton Police Commission meeting that we were both at, the police uh, did finally release... Um, stuff the, the evidence that did corroborate their version of events they released video footage that showed a knife uh as well as a picture of the knife so you know you were at the uh the commission yesterday you've had you know a chance to kind of sit down this is the day after recording this the day after the meeting what are your thoughts now that you've kind of seen the the additional kind of context that those videos provide it doesn't really do anything to diminish, I think, the shock of the first um, the first viewing. But but I would say we've had context given to us over the uh, the since the event happened last week. Um, you know, Duncan, I, I also saw you at a rally uh, where we were going to watch um, that was put on by Bear Clan, and uh, we both heard people talking about police brutality um, that day as well. Um, I, I spoke with somebody who had had to experienced mental health problems and um, and mentioned that they had been hogtied and had a bag over their head. Um, I couldn't, I can't confirm those details, of course, but uh, there's definitely a, a real lack of trust in um, the homeless community and the Indigenous community when it comes to the police. So I, I think a lot of what reaction we saw online came from that and, and even at the police commission. Um, there was a, a person there that, that we interviewed and spoke to media who didn't believe the videos, just said, you know, I, I've seen enough. I don't believe a video if it comes right out. And that is a that is quite the place to be in if you are the Edmonton police. Um, trust is uh, is an important part, um, you know, like of our of our democratic system, of the way the the province works and and it shows that there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And that kind of gets us further into the the, um, the police commission because in their own strategic plan, uh, they, <laughs> they did have a note where they, they mentioned that, that the standards of policing or the the thoughts on, on what policing is or should be have been changing. So there's like, there's a little bit of recognition. There's recognition at the strategic level, but I don't know that I saw that come through in the remarks. No, it was it was it was a slam dunk home run. The, the cop was justified. That she had a knife. Cop can do what can do what he wants, and he did what he wanted, and got the outcome that was desired. Right? Like this is, I mean, I think the one of the more interesting things about the rhetoric around this is is the quotes from the acting chief Devin LaForce yesterday, as well as from um, uh, Michael Elliott, the chief of the Edmonton Police Association, the cop union, where they're like, yeah, like. This is policing sometimes. Is, I mean, I'm paraphrasing them right now, but it ain't pretty is essentially what their quotes were. <laughs> and uh, I don't think most people are aware that this kind of violence is just kind of par for the course, right? Um, I, no, I, I don't think most people would. Well, I guess it depends what we mean by most people. Um, let's say... Like the like, let's go with like an average Canadian or average Albertan. Probably, 
middle class uh, person might not have a lot of interactions with the police. It's certainly not a surprise within the indigenous community. It's, it's stories that I hear um, quite often. Although I have to say um, this story correlates with me uh, also going to Muscatchies and hearing concerns about gang violence and, and deaths in that community where they're actually calling for tribal police. Uh, so, so we're in a world where um, we're seeing, you know, at least uh, a noticeable increase of um, of disorder or social breakdown, um, drug use, that sort of thing. Uh, and I think we're still reckoning with how to deal with it. Mm. Yeah, and and Commissioner Jody Calhoun Stonehouse, like she sits on the Edmonton Police Commission, um, though probably not for much longer that she is running for the NDP. I imagine she has to step down at some point. She did kind of raise obliquely the kind of elephant in the room here that this was, you know, a houseless indigenous woman who was on the video who was shoved to the ground. And like, I'll just read out the quote. Houselessness of indigenous women has tripled since pre-COVID. So we're going to see more and more incidents unless we strategize collectively on how we might solve these complex problems. What, uh, when she kind of like stood, I mean, she didn't physically stand up, but when she actually like went to the effort of, of raising that point, what, what was going through your head? I was really glad to hear her voice in this conversation. And it really shows the importance of having uh, an Indigenous, a First Nations woman at the table um, as a member of the community. She also, uh, she did start by talking about peace pipes being raised and elders reminding her of the importance of uh, the treaty and, and how that agreement was made with peace and friendship. Um, and when you hear Indigenous people talk about that, that's um, that, that's very much a cultural thing. Uh, people may not understand, but there's a real reverence for elders in the in the culture. So we often look to them to give the wisdom of, of past years and, and maybe um, tamp down our more hot-headed impulses. Um, I hope, I, I, I mean, she may have to step down. I'm, I'm not really sure of that, but uh, she, it would be a real loss to the police commission. And I hope that they would you know, look for another perspective in the indigenous community, if that is the case. Yeah. My understanding is that she, I mean, she's running to be an NDP MLA in Edmonton. So like a very, very good chance she wins. Uh, Mm -hmm. And like, so I think at that point she just has to step down. And I think there are a few vacancies, maybe three. I think there are three actual vacancies coming either after Jody Calhoun steps down that are coming up. So that's actually like three out of 12. That's what a quarter of the commission that will be end up being replaced over the next whatever six months or something. So that that is an interesting uh, kind of wrinkle to all of this as well. Um, I think the other big thing that I have to bring up is that like, you know, I was wrong. You know, I, I am going to have to eat crow on this one. Like I did not see a knife in the initial video. I spoke to a witness who also said that she did not see a knife. And I thought that, you know, the initial reluctance of the EPS to release a picture of the knife, which they would have had right away, as well as the corroborating kind of like uh, surveillance camera footage and the fact that they didn't charge her. I thought that this was all just going to be a cover up. I was extremely skeptical of the EPS version of events. And I, I think it as a journalist who does police accountability journalism, like I think I'm very justified in being skeptical of the Edmonton police service, but I was wrong. You know, they're, their version of events ended up being corroborated by the footage. So now 
Danielle, is your your opportunity to roast me? Did I did I fuck up on this one? <laughs> well, there's a saying in journalism: um, first to publish, first to be wrong. So <laughs> that is one of the the perils of of uh, rushing on a story, Duncan. And you you were one of the first that were out. Um, it, now, I, I think when it comes to skepticism. You know, I, I teach journalism too, and so one of the things that I, I talk to my students about is the importance of sort of uh, waiting. Sometimes the story, is, the, the entirety, takes a while to come into focus, and that's not a very popular thing. So you're certainly not alone. There were other media rushing to cover the story in whatever way they could, as well. Um, where where you may have been premature was in bringing in that analysis part. I would say. So uh, did you fuck up? Well, a little, yeah. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, like I did post the EPS statement, you know, we have updated our story to reflect the footage that's been released. Um, like we're doing all of the journalism things that we should be doing. Um, you know, we, I am a member of the Canadian Association of Journalists. I did go to journalism school, got taught by maybe not the same people that taught you, but you know, the same type of people. And uh, <laughs> You don't have to prove your bona fides to me. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. But I guess moving off of that, I mean, I suppose the fun one final kind of question about this incident that I that I want to raise with you is like, was this still police brutality? Um, well, there's I, I don't know that the like police brutality as a term is kind of it, it's not a it's not a legal definition. There's not a black and white description of what it is. It's uh, even the police, uh, the acting chief for McPhee. Um, uh, LaForge mentioned that people do have different perspectives. So uh, people that you and I have, have interviewed still feel like this was an excessive use of force. Um, we, when we look at the, uh, the, for, the use of force report that uh, the commission receives twice a year, uh, we see that that was a category two, I believe. So minor, minor injuries, but not requiring outpatient procedures or hospitalization. Uh, so th- there's a real difference in in opinion and, and in feelings and probably in experience. I mean, imagine you're the woman who was shoved to the ground. That's probably a, a far more traumatic experience than the officer doing the shoving for whom it, it appears to be quite routine based on their comments at the commission. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think what what the footage, what the footage did show was just kind of how fast it all happened. And the kind of instantaneous decision-making that is that was at play there. And I don't think the first instinct was not to de-escalate the situation, right? The first instinct was to push that woman to the ground when she wasn't looking. And, uh, you know, from the police point of view, it worked. It got the outcome that it wanted. But, uh, <laughs> you know, when, when, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? And in this case the solution was to immediately escalate yeah i mean i think the framework of like escalation and de-escalation as we talk about it it seems to be different than how police view um successful interactions with the public like their their comments at the commission showed that they thought that this was uh although maybe not a by the book um because of shoving not being the tactic that they necessarily teach, but that um, the decision-making, the lack of uh, any further incidents and the, like the way that she was de-armed. And then, you know, that they, they definitely repeated several times that she was fed a meal. So that was something that they really wanted us to know. Um, I, I think that when we, th- when we talk about these things, we're, we're coming at it from 
different worldviews. The police don't necessarily view interactions with the public in the same way or, or what constitutes positive or negative uh, social experience or social experiences. Mm-hmm. I mean, the police made it seem like she was about to go on like a murder spree or like a stabbing spree. Right. And, and I watched the footage and I think even the cop just showing up there kind of like broke up the, the argument that was happening. The, the, maybe the fight that was about to happen between those two women. Uh, you know, I don't want to like Monday morning quarterback what happened here. I think we've discussed it enough, but it's just like, I, it, you know, this is, this is policing in with, this is how it works. And this officer, according to the police did nothing wrong and there's not going to be any follow-up or any investigation and that, that this is it. The case is closed. Right. Yeah, and and within the um, the frameworks, like you know, ACERT does the uh, serious incident investigations. You can see how it wouldn't fit into uh, anything an investigation there. And then for the internal internal standards, I think what they focus on is really the the resulting injuries when it comes to that, that those interactions. Like, was the person severely injured, hospitalized? Um, you know, or was there an outpatient procedure? When we look at the metrics, I think that's how we can begin to start to understand the ways in which uh, the institution that is policing views um, the work that they do. And and I think that that's an important perspective to look at. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with them, but to 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 have these conversations. And, and uh, Jody Callahan Stonehouse also called them uncomfortable conversations, but you have to kind of, you have to try and understand the worldview in order to get how we can make changes within it. If that's what you're looking to do. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought up this strategic plan because yeah, that was another interesting part of the uh, Edmonton police commission, the, the whole experience. I mean, I think that was your first meeting. I've been, I go to them all the time, but like, yeah, they just kind of drop these documents full of corporate speak like it's very much does function like a corporation and they, they, they have these documents, but there were a couple of very eyebrow raising parts of this strategic plan that I think speak to the conversation that we were just having about the lack of trust. They, they literally, the subhead is lack of trust. And I'm just going to like read it out here. Cause it's, it's uh, this is actually in like an Edmonton police service document across North America. There have been several highly publicized incidents involving police that had tragic outcomes for racialized communities. Can we just, uh, before I can keep reading the, the lack of trust subhead here, can we just marvel at the like amazing passive voice of, of that sentence? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're looking at, you know, still essentially a branch of government. So they, they really do follow that way of, of speaking like several tragic outcomes for racialized community um, that that phrasing can hide a lot of sins uh, and that's not that's not really from an opinion perspective that's just in if you uh, if you're a journalist who covers any kinds of government um, offices you get used to having to actively make sense of what they're saying and and Ruto you know that kind of uh, language is infectious. You, you have to actually pull it out yourself. I found myself having to go back and edit. I think it was like disabilizing injuries and hospitalizations, something that I was horrified to see. I put in my own work. Um, oh, man, it is. It, it is. it is everywhere. You do have to like constantly kind of root it out. But here, I'll, I'll keep reading. Consequently, public calls for accountability of policing have increased while trust in all police organizations have declined. 
EPS's own statistics show a decrease in the number of Edmontonians who have confidence in EPS. And according to the EPS annual perception survey, overall perceptions of EPS declined over the last year. Some of these indicators reflect a lack of trust. And then they go on to reference a poll, which whatever polls are polls. But I, I mean, they're probably referencing a poll too, but I don't, I don't think they're wrong to kind of highlight the lack of trust uh, within their own strategic document. And this is, this is, this, this whole, the, the other two things I'm going to read, which are quite interesting as well. This is all like a state of policing kind of a, is the, like the super super head of all mm -hmm. of this. Yeah. Um, but like, I mean, I still have to go back to that. Several highly publicized incidents involving police that had tragic outcomes for racialized communities. What they're talking about are where like police murdered black people. <laughs> I mean, that was the, the con that was the, like the starting off point for, Black Lives Matter and, uh, uh, you know, the summer of 2020, the largest protest movement kind of in North American history. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and if I can actually, uh, the, let's just read little pieces of this strategic report back and forth to each other. Yeah, as a yeah, podcast. Which one do you want to read? Um, yeah, yeah. There was a, it was right above the polit the comments about politicizing policing and how uh, police and politics have become increasingly intertwined. Um, mm. And so here they're looking at the federal and provincial laws. And if you've ever been in a strategic planning session, you know, it's like this big group of people. Everybody's kind of like opining. There's always some loud mouth. Um, who wants to over-intellectualize everything. There's always somebody else that thinks they're an expert. And then you kind of jam this into a document that uh, is full of somewhat non-sequitur conversations. But one of my favorites um, is literally talking about decriminalization and, and the oh, yeah. social effects. Uh, for example, while decriminalization may prevent a person from being arrested for the personal possession of a small quantity of drugs, the use of drugs still has social consequences for which there are limited supports. And it's like, hmm, okay, well, like, mm. take that a step further then and, and what... What? Where where should where should the supports maybe come from? Maybe your giant police budget? I don't know. This all seems I don't know. How do you say this, Danielle? Very political. <laughs> like the decriminalization of drugs would be a, a political decision, not a policing one. It, even though Chief Dale McPhee has come out very publicly, as have all the Alberta chiefs of police, against decriminalizing drugs. Um, which again is a political position. The police don't get to decide what the laws are, what's what's legal or illegal. Um. But I think this one leads very well into the the final one, which you kind of raised as well, which is the little subhead here is politicizing policing. Police and politics have become increasingly intertwined, with many opposing views on what some believe policing should be and what it funda fundamentally must do, keep people safe. This has led to disruptions in funding and erosion of public trust in the police. Yeah, I Danielle, really... <laughs> are, are politics and policing becoming increasingly intertwined? I wouldn't say that there's an increasing... Um, I mean, it, police unions have existed for a long time. And, yeah, for 60 um, years, yeah. Yeah, for 60 years, which, you know, in the Canadian memory is, is forever. It's like half of the creation of the country. Uh, so, well, a little bit less than half. Uh, anyway, moving on from my bad math, um, we, we need to think about the ways in which police have always had uh, a tremendous influence in conversations, especially at the municipal level, because the police, even, even the way that the police are governed is largely unknown to people. And I, and I know you know this because you've been doing a lot of, a lot of work, but when I speak to people, they, they come to me if they're upset about 
some police interaction, they ask, well, what does city council do? And I have to explain the role of the police commission, um, the kind of like at arm's length role. It's not as though you can just call the mayor and have him like go scold the police chief. That's not how the system works. And most people are shocked about that. And, and they say, well, why don't we know this? And that's a pretty yeah, good question. I, the, the police are some of the most intensely uh, effective and vocal political actors like that exist in politics. <laughs> like, like straight up. That is, that is not an over-exaggeration. Like the police have a political agenda and they work towards affecting that political agenda very well because they have a huge platform. Media listens to what they say. Counselors listen to what they say. The public listens to what they say. They have massive communications department. The chief just can just show up and call a press conference and every media person will show up. Like there is no world in which politics and policing are not incredibly intertwined because the police are political actors and always have been. They, there's a reason the Edmonton police have a half a billion dollar budget. And it's, it's not because uh, they're not political. <laughs> If, if I could yeah, frame it that way. at the very, I mean, um, I think Andrew Knack once talked about this when, when, when I was talking about police budgets back with my Rage Against the Municipal newsletter, um, that this is one of the few areas of, of a bureaucracy, be it like the provincial, federal, municipal, where whatever the performance measures, um, they, they could be given more money because that that's the defense, right? And we, we saw that just the other day when it came to uh, discussions on body cams. So some community members um, like Jody from uh, Beaver Hills, uh, Bear Clan, is interested in, in body cameras and the police respond with, yes, we are too. And that means that we would need more money. And, and so that's a unique, um, well, it's, it's not unique for a, a branch of government to be calling for more resources and money. That's, that's very normal. But to be so effective uh, as a message and, and to get that, that public outcry, um, you know, Andrew Nackett said that was one of the few areas of the city where if you even try to have a discussion on the budget, you get momentous public pushback and people kind of say to you, well, you know, the, the police like need what they need to do their job. Mm. And that doesn't really happen anywhere else. You don't hear that in say like social <laughs> services. The, 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 the boss of Edmonton public transit does not yeah, have the same amount of political sway as, as the police chief. Right. Like, I, no, I don't no, even no. know that person's name, you know, like what is their name? I don't know. I'm I sure. Don't know. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm sure glad you're you doing a, a great job, though, whoever you are. Yeah. <laughs> no, I have no beef with ETS right now. <laughs> but you did bring up a, fun, a, a point that I, is in the notes that I do think I do want to spend a little bit of time on, which is this issue of body cameras. I, I believe it was raised by Councillor Karen Tang. Uh, and it just kind of, and I think Judy Gale also brought it up in some quotes to media. And I have my own thoughts on body cameras. Uh, and I'll just, I'm just going to put them out there. Because I, I think it's worthwhile to just like nip it in the bud. I think the call for body cameras must be resisted. Body cameras do not address poverty or housing or mental health or addiction. They do not address a broken police accountability system where cops investigate cops and where cops skate away from nearly all of the consequences for their actions. Body cams won't make the Edmonton Police Commission like do the job of providing civilian oversight. And finally, body cameras can just be turned off when cops want to turn them off. It is literally just millions of dollars more into the police budget, into the unaccountable money pit that is the police budget. Like, you remember the dash cam stuff, right? You've seen that story? 
Yes, uh, so the dash cam, um, they, they were given money for the dash cam and then they decided, uh, the police asked to reallocate the funds for that. So that's kind of the 50 cent yeah, they view went, of the story. They went to city council. They're like, we need five million. I think it was five. I, don't quote me. But like, we need five million dollars for dash cameras, which is like, and then city council was like, great, here's five million dollars for dash cameras. And then EPS was just like, actually, uh, we spent it on IT instead. <laughs> you know? Like... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the police budget. So you you can't necessarily guarantee that there would be um there would, there would be purchasing for the body cameras, but I think what you've said is really interesting as well. I certainly don't blame um, the community for trying to look for a way that um, they can increase what they view as a lack of accountability. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, I, I think you raise interesting points about why that might not be the solution. Yeah, like I'm just gonna pull a number out of there. Let's just say it's another five million for body cameras. There's you got to pay a guy to do it. There's the data management. There's attention. You got to buy the cameras. Let's just say it's five million. Let's say it's like four million capital cost, one million ongoing. That's like you could actually build housing. You know, <laughs> like anytime I I have a story coming out. I'm gonna scoop myself a little bit. Uh, but like I have a story coming out. Uh, either probably by the time this comes out. And the city of Edmonton pays $1.4 million a year in just cash payouts to cops for clothes. They have a, in their collective agreement, uniform cops get just under $600 a year. Uh, cops who work in civilian clothes get $1,250 a year. It's just, and it's just wired into their account at the beginning of the year. It's just like, oh, you're a cop. This is part of your agreement. Here's here's $1.4 million a year in money that goes out the door for for cash. That's in for clothes. That's $1.4 million a year that could like literally be building houses. Um, I, instead, I guess not, like what uh, what defines like the clothes budget? Uh, like boots, clothing, dry cleaning is the like the broad rubric. Oh, but it's just it's just mm-hmm. but it's just a cash benefit, right? Like it, it, they could spend it on anything. But no, it's like as a union, they're also remarkably effective. That's a <laughs> yeah. that's quite a benefit. It yes, uh, when you compare it to ETS, for instance, the the transit union, uh, they get eighty five dollars a year for boots. That's the that's what they get, and then fire has uh, like seven hundred dollars a year, but it's like a points based system, and they have to um, they can they get half of the money has to be spent on like firefighting clothes, uh, so it's like it's not comparable. It's, it's not it's not a, like a direct cash benefit either. So yeah, they do have a very effective union. <laughs> um, uh, yes, uh, I, I, I wish every union was as strong as and effective <laughs> in bargaining as the cop unions were. Um, just some other police commission stuff I wanted to run down real fast. Uh, we were supposed to get a presentation from StatsCan on the RAS race data project that they have mm-hmm. been working on for many, many years. Uh, but unfortunately, they canceled and pushed it a couple of months. But this uh, really does highlight the fact that EPS does not collect race-based data. <laughs> um, and their justification for this is that, oh, we're waiting for StatsCan to give us these unified guidelines. Um but Ontario collects this race-based data. Uh, it was released earlier this year to great fanfare. Uh, really, a, 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 I mean, a, a wholly ineffective but very large-scale PR <laughs> a blitz by the Toronto Police Service to try and minimize the fact that, oh, yes, uh, Toronto Police do, in fact, use more force against Black people with very little explanation than any other group. Um, isn't it kind of embarrassing that this data isn't collected already, Danielle? Yeah, I mean, as a as a... Journalists, it's been incredibly frustrating when you're trying to contextualize um, police interactions with the public or even just uh, statistics when you see high levels of incarcer- incarceration among 
um, certain populations. We, we've long drawn inferences, I think, from the U.S., which uh, does beat us when it comes to data and transparency in, in some states, um, where you see higher levels of interaction with police within, say, the Black community, which naturally then would correlate to higher levels of incarceration. We've not effectively been able to do that kind of analysis here in Edmonton or, or in Canada. You know, to, um, now we we do have a couple years of data from um was it Toronto or Ontario policing? Uh, maybe just Toronto, yeah. Toronto, yeah. So to- Toronto specifically. Um, and, and that gives us a, a tiny picture, but that's a very different uh, community and a very different, like, uh, diversity and, like, um, communities that you'd find in Toronto than you find in Edmonton. Um, you have, you know... A, a a port city. It's a place where lots of people uh, coexist together, whereas Edmonton is still somewhat homogenous and or slightly segregated in our, Mm. in how we are in our communities. And so you're left to, you're left with like, and with anecdotes. And although the, another aphorism is that the plural of data or of data is not anecdote. Um, But we, we don't have anything else to work with. So it is. It's. It's not only embarrassing. It's frustrating. It's. It's deliberate. I. I think. Oh yeah. Um. Not sharing this information means that it's challenging to form a narrative, um, that that tries to show, um, that say indigenous populations are disproportionately affected by the police or or other marginalized populations as well, of course. But and they uh, collect the police collect some race based data, like like as the the FOIPs and you know the work of uh, kind of Bashir Muhammad showed like indigenous people and black people are carded or street checked more than disproportionately more than like their population in the community um but i think the lack of race based data really uh the fact that that they canceled and that we're waiting on this unified guideline set and eps doesn't collect this data i think the fact that that you know, the fact that this is embarrassing that they don't collect it was made all the more clear because at the same police commission meeting, they released, uh, EPS released their control tactics report, which is essentially like every six months they release a report that says, here's all the times we like pulled our guns out or beat someone up or like took them to the ground or used a taser. And, you know, they've got all the numbers, they've got the graphs, they've got the trend lines, but we don't have any con- context on whether that's be- just all that force is disproportionately being applied to a black and indigenous people. We suspect that it very likely is, but we do not know. Yeah. It, um, when it comes to analysis or, or those big conversations, and, and this actually ties in, in in kind of a weird way to a, a release that came out while you and I were at the police commission, I believe about hiring more female peace officers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we we have all these interactions, I would say, with with um, diversity metrics. Like uh, it's you know obviously uh, if the city is going to put out a release, then they view this as here's a positive thing that we're working towards. Um, you know, race and gender inclusion. While simultaneously, we're hearing at the police commission through um, not only Lafarce but also the staff sergeant. He had their Tassin, I believe. Uh, talking about race and gender, in fact, not being a consideration when they apply mm-hmm. force to somebody. They, they've said that they they don't include that because it doesn't have anything to do with lethality or 
or the ability like to disrupt community or, or something like that. Like they, they just said they don't think about race and gender when it comes to that. Even in the strategic plan, though, there, there was conversation about hiring more um, racialized police officers or something about metrics on indigenous police officers. And, and so it's either important or it's not. Uh, when it comes to how we how we interact in the world, if race and gender is not a factor, then why would they think it's important to hire more people from that population? That's a very good point. I hadn't considered that, but they definitely down to the yeah, every single woman, every single like non-white person that gets hired, like that gets noted in a report, and they yeah, like I've seen those reports. They definitely keep track of that shit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think there's. I mean, just just from the use of force, like the control tactics things, like I, I've looked at those a couple of times. They come out. I've reported on them before. Um, the trends in this one are the trends that I've seen before, which is that police, the the amount of times that police pull their guns out keeps going up, and that's steadily rising. The amount of times police pull their tasers out keeps going up, uh, though the amount of times they use them has remained relatively flat. Um, like the actual like punching, kicking, striking numbers went slightly down while the amount, the number of takedowns or, uh, what did they, they had some, uh, what was the, the police nomenclature for takedown? It was like balance dislocation or something. <laughs> it, was, it was something like that. Yes. Uh, they, they had takedown in there as well, but it was, uh, yeah, it was like balance dislocation slash takedown just in case yeah. you like couldn't figure out their cop speak. Um, I think those were up. So, you know, take it what you will. I mean, this was the first time you've kind of looked at this data. Did, did anything kind of jump out at you from these kind of use of force statistics? Mm, I mean, we had a conversation pretty early on when I saw them about the, the slight, the increase that was somewhat significant when it came to firearms and tasers. I, it's, it's very hard to like, this is where metrics are not that useful to me. I mean, each one of these is a story and when you take like that, that story that we just covered of, of the woman being shoved to the ground, that's the category two. Um, that doesn't that doesn't necessarily have a, a weapon. So it would be like an open hand strike, I think is what they called that. So w- within each one of these numbers is is a whole story. And and it I, I don't find it personally. And then maybe this is just being a journalist or a writer. Like it, it's not a very compelling way to tell me what's going on. In the community, it doesn't tell me if there's a problem with uh, police aggression or not. I, I don't think. Like, would the hospitalization numbers have to be high for us to be concerned, or how can you look at this chart and parse out um, what this has to do with trust in the community? Like, how can you? You could maybe do some overlapping graphs of like increased number of open hand strikes, or you know, versus uh, versus public trust polling or something, <laughs> right? Yeah. But even that would be very uh, ineffective because the people that they're polling are probably not the people that they're uh, open hand striking. They're hitting, yeah, yeah. I mean, it it is a kind of relatively useless data because there is so such little context. You don't have the race based data. I mean, the other thing that makes the data less useful as well is the fact that like any super serious incident that gets kicked up to ACERT, it just isn't included in the stats for some reason. Mm-hmm. So. so so like the Edmonton police have killed four people this year uh, with their guns. And the, like one of them was just like a person sitting on their couch, like behind someone else who was getting shot. None of those stats, none of those deaths are included in the stats. 
Yeah, and and I don't know what the reason for that is. If it's just some because it's a different department, or or they don't feel yeah, like it's someone else's reliably. problem. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's someone else's problem. It's Acert now because it's an Acert. It's it doesn't exist. Well, it doesn't exist to them, right? But this information does still co- go to the police report or the police commission. Oh. It's important to say that. Like, it's not as though hmm. nobody has this information. No, no, it's just it's just for whatever reason it's not included in their control tactics statistics for whatever reason. Yeah. And did they um if you have those in front of you now, do they do they have any um like contextualization or like metrics? Like is there a good percentage of str- of force or do they is it just they're kind just, of a neutral? They're just remarking on trends. They're just like it went up, it went down, it stayed the same. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're the, the analysis is not deep. The analysis is just like does the, the does the line go up, does the line go down, you know? Right. But w- one last uh, police commission thing, and I will I will take a small W uh, from this, which is that buried in some like policy changes uh, is the fact that the Edmonton Police Commission yesterday debuted a policy, put it into actual practice that the salary of the chief will now be disclosed on a yearly basis. And uh, now this is only happening because like I foiped it and I kicked up a stink. Uh, about it because like for some reason it wasn't public <laughs> like one of the like albert like calgary and edmonton like seem to be the only two major municipal police forces that just like don't disclose the salary of the chief for some reason and uh and edmonton is now disclosing the salary of the chief so you know journalism works folks <laughs> so yes a good, good small w uh it is <laughs> nice to see um well i don't know the Sunshine List, I have ambivalent feelings about them, but um, if other public servants have to have their data out there, then it is equally fair to have the police chief. I mean, he's the highest paid civil servant like in Edmonton, you know, by a wide margin. Uh, so I think, I mean, that, yeah, like say what you will about Sunshine Lists, but like the guy makes $340,000 a year. He's the highest paid civil servant by a wide margin. Like that should be public information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair. And lastly, yes, this is this is law enforcement adjacent, uh, but this came out literally like the same day as the police commission stuff, and I did just want to touch on it briefly, which is uh, the city of Edmonton sent out this release to the media list yesterday. Headline, city of Edmonton takes pledge to advance women in enforcement. The city of Edmonton signed, on September 19th, the city of Edmonton signed the 30 by 30 pledge to increase the recruitment, retention, and promotion of women in law enforcement in the city of Edmonton's community standards and neighborhood branch to 30% by 2030. Uh, they really do. These kind of like bureaucratic institutions really do have these like, these like numbers, like 30 by 30 as if, as if it means and like it's picked out of the air, but okay. Uh, currently 19% of the city's community standards peace officers are women. This is below the national average of 22%. And get this, get this, Danielle, below the demographic breakdown of Edmonton's population. <laughs> Did you know that 19% is less than 50? <laughs> um, yes. Well, I, I, let me think of a of a, a positive thing to say here. <laughs> um, it was nice to see David Jones' name. He was a former police officer, now apparently a branch manager for community standards and neighborhoods. Uh, David Jones was a big advocate for um, having more women in, in policing. So I guess he's bringing that initiative over to the... Um, the city of Edmonton's, what, what are we calling them? The peace officers? Community yes. standards and neighborhoods. Yeah, they, these are the peace officers. These are the people who like hand out bylaw tickets. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, these are the like, they don't have guns. These essentially, they're like enforcement folks who don't have guns. 
and apparently it's a it's a good job with uh, work life balance. They have some quotes in here from a, a peace officer who's uh, loves the job and. One minute she's doing patrols on bike, the next day she's working a downtown festival, you know? Yeah. Yep. Um, I mean, I'm not, I don't think this is like a huge news story or anything like good on the city of Edmonton, I guess. But like that line, <laughs> just, I had to, I had to bring it up like <laughs> below the demographic breakdown of Edmonton's population. <laughs> um, hmm. yes. Thank you. That's, um. I mean, I guess, I guess you have to put that in. <laughs> it's very funny. Yeah. Uh, just some stat. There are 190 peace officers and 40 municipal enforcement officers in Edmonton. So if they want to get to 30% by 30, 2030, they have to have a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, they did mention, and, and I'm curious what the outcome of this would be. So I think this is something to, to watch. And, and I don't know, actually, this this brings like, where's the data on peace officers and their interaction with the public? Because uh, mm-hmm. they do mention that they are trained in Indigenous awareness, mental health awareness, de-escalation techniques, and how to work with youth and Edmontonians experiencing homelessness. So for people whose like, job it is to issue parking tickets, like I'm really curious how that like interacts with the, the or how, how they envision... Um, is this is this community policing? Are they trying to have some kind of policing outside of the police because they're not seeing the changes they well, want to see? Or what does this mean for us? I mean, the scale of this, I think, needs to be put into context. So like 190 plus 40, 230, you know, we'll, we'll just lump them together. There are about just under 2000, there's like 1900 sworn police officers in Edmonton. So, you know, you're looking at a fraction, you know, it's almost an order of magnitude more uh, police officers than there are these kind of like police peace officers, these uh, unarmed peace officers or municipal enforcement officers or whatever they're calling them. Um, So like it, it, like the scale of the budget is much smaller. Like the, there isn't um, really any oversight as far as I'm aware. Like there isn't a, a police commission for peace officers, you know, there isn't really this, this um, like over civilian oversight body that exists. Like it's, it's, it's uh, it is kind of parallel and adjacent to police, but it is, it is not police and it doesn't have the resources that police have or nearly the amount of just people working the job. So, you know, I like the fact that they're trained in indigenous awareness and mental, mental, mental health awareness, I think is very funny phrase. Um, I've always uh, found indigenous awareness to kind of be a funny phrase too, to be honest, like what, just like aware that we exist or like, what do you, what do you you know know that that they're around? Yeah. Like you talk to Um, an elder and now you're like, oh, well, (laughs) I I should stop now. (laughs) But, you know, like this all sounds like, you know, fine. I, I, the people who are out there, like making sure you don't jaywalk or like, I don't, I don't really know what these peace officers do. Like, I know they, they show up to these, uh, when, when encampments are getting kind of like torn apart, mm-hmm. uh, usually there's cops and peace officers there too. Like, and they're like responding to, um, you know, incidents that don't require police. Uh, but like, they're no substitute for, uh, like, actual kind of like crisis mental health crisis response which is dramatically under-resourced compared to even these peace officers (laughs) so 
And I know that this doesn't fit in very, like, it's just because we're talking about mental health awareness, um, this has reminded me. Do, do you recall that story in Calgary about the um, police officers doing some training with, like, a very dubious <laughs> yes, source? Yes, yes. Charles about Rusnell's scoop, yes. I mean, I don't have it in front of me, but what a scoop by Charles Rusnell. I mean, the, the cops just absolutely got taken in by, in an absolute con job diploma mill of, like, yeah, it, it, is, it was a very funny story. Uh, and the like, what was he was? He was a member of the like some hilarious associations that like the association of like surfing doctors or something. Yeah, it was this um, like it was like an alternative response. And, and um, there's somebody in the HR world that has their PhD from this academy. And then they had just these scathing remarks from the FM an American um I forget who he is, but like an American talking about how, you know, it wasn't worth the paper it was printed on. And and it was really interesting. So I guess all that to say, I hope that the mental health awareness training was from a good and reputable (laughs) source. But I think, I think we do need to keep an eye on on like this peace officer program and what it means, because I think like the the city is trying to signal something, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure what it is yet. And maybe this is just being, an obtuse reporter, but you know, it, why are you telling me about the indigenous awareness, the mental health awareness, the de-escalation techniques? Um, and is, does that mean that this is designed to be or, or intended to be a program that will help to take away the calls from police or, or what's the goal here in having this kind of simultaneous quasi police force? Mm, I agree. I think they do need more scrutiny and we do need to kind of like, what what do they actually do? Uh, I'm just going to read the headline for this global news story. It, it's a 13 minute read. It's really quick. We'll put it in the show notes. If you haven't read it yet, go read it. But it is very funny. Uh, headline, education fraud experts raise alarm about Calgary police ties to unaccredited college that uses Anaheim P.O. box in strip mall. And then the first paragraph here, Dr. Robert Perkins, a self-described expert in the prevention and treatment of PTSD, a certified sexologist, and a board member of the North American Surfing Doctors Association, was scheduled to give an in-person presentation on September 13th to Calgary Police Service members. It's so yeah, funny. and I mean, I mean like, despite your laughing, it is, it's, it's also very serious because I'm sure PTSD is a huge issue within all police forces. I mean, there are some stats on that, but mm-hmm. you need to get actual help, not some weird surfing doctor. Quack. Surfing sexologist. <laughs> yes. So the story, I, is, I, the story is wild. Like it, 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 uh, and it's wild. Like, like Charles was now posting about it online too. was like, yeah, this was like literally like a Google search. We found out this guy's like background. Like it was not like it was hard to find. <laughs> No, and, and I think it, you know, I think a lot of the influence comes in because it is, of course, a lot of HR, like most of the time in organizations that I'm familiar with, HR is responsible for the training of the employees. So if you have somebody who's already going to this school, I, I can definitely see how it happened. But I feel for the person that actually, like the, the guy that uncovered this too, he took the training, he thought whatever, whatever happened in the training made him look up like, who is this person? And then he realized, oh, this is a a weird surfing sexologist and and why is he training us on PTSD? So it is funny, but I also feel for the people that are, you know, had time and and money and resource wasted and probably need actual mental health, health support. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of a darker element to this story too. 
yes, you have much more empathy than I do on this story. Um, but that's, and just that's maybe right. in life um, in general. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Uh, this has been a lovely conversation, Danielle. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, if there is there, what's the best way for people to follow along with the work that you're doing? And yeah, like what's the best way people can keep track of what you're up to? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at, at Danny Parody, um, or you can find my writing on APTN. If you must, you can go to DanielleParody.com and you can see some samples of my previous work as well. Sweet. And uh, yes, I'm very excited that you're there now and, um, you know, with a Western correspondent. Mm-hmm. Lofty title and uh, <laughs> I hope to be able to grow in the role. Yes. Now, also, folks, if you have any notes, thoughts, comments uh, that you think I need to hear, I'm very easy to get a hold of as well. I, I'm an email at uh, DuncanK at ProgressAlberta.ca, and I am also on Twitter far too often at, uh, at DuncanKinney. Thanks to Jim Story for editing this podcast. Thank you to Kasmic Famu Communist for our theme. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>